This podcast is sponsored by Lightstep. Lightstep delivers confidence at scale for those who develop, operate, and rely upon today's powerful software applications. Answer questions and diagnose 100% of anomalies spanning mobile, monoliths, and microservices across every service in real time. Visit lightstep.com. Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Engineering Culture Podcast. In this episode, I bring together two of the recordings that I made at the recent QCon London conference. First, we've got Kinsley Davis talking about ethics, and then Kat Spiegel exploring requisite variety. Enjoy. I'm sitting down with Kinsley Davis. Hi, Shane. Nice to meet you. Hi, Kinsley. You run a coffee shop and a bakery on the side, (laughs) but you also are giving a talk here on effective ethics for busy people. Yeah, sure. Yes, I've been a busy person running a coffee shop and bakery on the side for since the start of the year, in fact. So some of the lead up to that and some of the story behind that. Last year, I put a conference together in Brighton called Good Tech Conf and with two other kind of collaborators on it because we saw that there was a desperate need to do something that investigated the tech for good space um, and the ethical technology space too. We'd seen the emergence of a few other things in this area. Um, So co-ed ethics as a conference that happened. Also meaning conference in Brighton being two big things that were kind of on the radar, but we were kind of keen to do something out of London and dig a bit deeper into the effects of ethics and technology on the near and future horizon and what was going on in the tech for good world and tech for good world being a very kind of different uh, world to the tech conference world that I'm used to. So tech for good being technology used for social impact, typically in what's called the third sector, Mm -hmm. which is the charity sector. But there seems to be um, very little overlap between kind of that world and the the kind of hardcore tech conference world. Mm -hmm. So put that conference together, um, did that in November and it was great, real success. Off the back of that, kind of got into doing more stuff around kind of local community-based activities. My wife's a baker, and that kind of led to us opening the coffee shop and bakery, because apart from being a coffee shop bakery, we also kind of run it as a bit of a community space for people to come together, talk about different things that are going on locally. But yeah, it's been a real kind of eye-opener, but a very kind of comfortable, a good busy, a good busy, if you would. So, But yes, I've been one of those busy people from the talk. So, tech for good. Why, yes. do, why do we need that now? Yeah, I think now is the prime time for tech for good. With a lot of the scandals and one thing and another that have been emerging over the past couple of years, we've come to see that data is the new oil, in fact. So, people trading data. And actually, that slight pivot between things going slightly askew, not through, through data breaches, but actual the product using our own data for its own ends and to influence people and not necessarily influence people in a particularly positive way but influence people for specific marketing ends or specific budgetary ends Mm -hmm. so I think the emergence of that over the past couple of years is really getting us into a place where we're starting to reevaluate whether this is a good thing or a bad thing and how we actually are able to judge that and how we react to it So if it's a bad thing, do our regulations meet the needs to to be able to address that? Or is it something that has to maybe emerge at the grassroots level? And and how do developers on the ground, what tools have they got to try and evaluate what they're working on, whether whether the outcomes could be used for good or ill? So as that individual contributor technologist sitting often at the bottom of a pipeline of do this, do this, do this, do this... 
how do I make a decision whether the, this algorithm I'm coding, this thing that I'm putting in place is good and what do I do if it's not? Yeah, I'm with you. So lots of different course of actions um, depending on how extreme and how, I guess really, how psychologically safe that individual feels in their organization. Uh, there's probably an overarching statement that if someone doesn't feel psychologically safe and supported, so, so when I say psychologically safe, do they feel confident that they can express their opinion and that something will happen to that opinion and not happen to them for the worse? If someone doesn't feel safe in their environment, arguably it's time for them to very likely find a different environment to be within where they feel supported and safer. If they do feel safe within that environment, then definitely there's steps that they can take to try and tackle those problems and at least start asking the questions whether at some point in the future we start actually formalising this and putting something like ethics into the continuous delivery pipeline so that we have maybe a champion or something who's responsible for ethics and has ethical training and can evaluate those things as, as products get delivered. And there's, there's lots of different toolkits that are starting to emerge on the horizon to try and evaluate and not necessarily metricate, but, but make some form of judgment over the direction of travel of the technology we're producing. One of the things, we call it software engineering, yeah. but very, very seldom do we actually go through a proper engineering training. Yeah, that's very true too. What I know of other engineering professions, very often they are required as part of their profession. They have codes of conduct, they have ethical frameworks that they're, they're required to, to abide by. We don't see that in software development in, uh, in IT. Today. No, it's very true. I mean, they're slowly starting to emerge, but it, um, it has been as much a reaction to some of the exposés over the past couple of years as something that's been kind of forethought and been come through from prior design. Yeah, but, so there has been talk of having an equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath for developers and things like the Stockholm Letter have certainly been pushing that kind of agenda and whether that then becomes something that leads to regulation or some form of formal certification of um, people in the software engineering industry. Be interesting to see how that plays out. There's other guidelines around ethics too. So the ACM have a code of conduct and have a code of ethics that's available. Yeah, there's lots of things that are slowly starting to emerge on the horizon and give us ethical frameworks to try and work within and do evaluation within. Whether any of them stick or one of them ends up being a kind of victor on the horizon, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I think there's almost maybe a. Um, almost a sad inevitability that it might take another couple of incidences to happen at scale and delivered with speed for that to cause that kind of reaction to, to occur. If we think about the legislative environments in the world today, legislation responds... Yeah, slowly it's and after the fact. And yeah. after the fact. For sure yes. it does. And often, if we think of a pendulum, it goes too far. Yeah. Yeah. What do we do as a tech community? What can we do? What should we be doing? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think the first step is to try to get connected and feed off the right kind of frequencies and echo chambers. So find out what is available in your local developer community. Find out what's happening within the industry around the area of tech ethics too. There is a toolkit that has been published too called the Ethical OS Toolkit. And there's a chap who wrote a marvellous blog post about it called Sam Warner and has done, delivered quite a few talks around it too. But that does try and partition the problem into small manageable pieces and give you a framework in which you can try and evaluate whether 
the future of the technology you're delivering now could be used for good or ill. So the Ethical OS toolkit is fantastic. What else can developers do? As I say, try and tap into the right echo chambers. Maybe attend events, get involved in more conferences or go out blogging or public speaking around things. But I think from my perspective, there's certainly been a grassroots groundswell of developers who are slowly getting more engaged and interested in this area and are starting to see that the horizon might not be people trying to fill in their spare time with leisure activities, but actually trying to maybe do things more around their privacy and data concerns. So yeah, I think there's, there's a groundswell that's occurring. Hopefully it happens quick enough. What else is happening in this space? You know, we've got the ethics track here at QCon. Uh, you did the Good Tech Conference last year. What's coming yeah, next? So, so other things that are on the horizon that I'm aware of, in, specifically in the space in London and the South Coast. So the 1st and 2nd of May, there's a conference called Beyond Tech, which is discussing ethical uses and implications of technology. That's a two-day conference. That looks great. That's also pulling in people from the Tech for Good community. So people like Alex Stephanie, who are using technology to try and deliver social impact products. So in Alex's specific case, he's the CEO of a company called Beam, who run a crowdsource, crowdfunding platform to try and retrain and launch people who are in a position of being homeless back into homes and back into industry. So there's Beyond Tech. Also in November, we're doing a one day of Good Tech Conf again, and that'll be in Brighton again on the Monday after the weekend of Meaning Conf, which again will be the application of technology to ethical software, ethical implications back on technology and how we can use technology for social good. So that's happening in November too. And yeah, very excited for both of them. Again, it seems like the velocity is starting to kind of pick up again around this particular strand of technology, around ethics in tech. So exploring this technology for social good, it's probably not something that many of our listeners have heard about. What's happening in that space? Yeah, so all kinds of stuff happening in that space. Slowly, I can see that business strategies that have been used in the open source world and for, say, crowdfunding, are slowly being adapted and applied to the charity sector. So Beam is probably the the poster child for this kind of work, where they're using the crowdsource model or crowdfund model and adapting that back to a real-world third sector issue. So, And that's happening increasingly too. We're also seeing things where, given the number of the deluge of requests coming in for things like public sector services like the NHS, we're seeing calls and one thing and another and at least the first passive diagnosis happening through things like AI and machine learning bots to try and take some of the load off real-world actual physical people doctors and try and pair that back to try and maybe influence them or shortcut a few steps before things actually arrive at some some individuals are incredibly overworked too. So that's that's not just in the third sector, but in the kind of um, tech for good sector. We're seeing all kinds of things emerging on the, I guess, bleeding edge of technology to try and lighten the load on a very kind of stretched um, sector already. So, so yeah, all kinds of stuff happening there. Another area where I guess technology is really starting to kind of see the rise of interest in one thing and another is around the green tech sector. So energy use of data centres, whether they can be fed from green energy use, the carbon footprint of data centres, but energy use has become increasingly a bigger topic. And I think we're seeing that ongoing too. I suppose one thing that has perhaps fed into this too are things like seeing um, the emergence of technologies like Bitcoin and blockchain, 
where the last report I saw was about six months old, where I believe the amount of electricity used by Bitcoin miners would be equivalent to the 38th country in the world in terms of electricity consumption, which seems ridiculous. There's obviously a financial gain for people who are winning the cryptographic prize in Bitcoin to, to push them towards doing this. But we are effectively boiling the ocean for pushing technology to um, those extremes. So, yeah, I think green technology and the ethical use of power in technology and the efficient use of power in technology and the use of carbon in technology too and carbon footprint of data centers, that's increasingly coming to the fore. And I know that Anne Curry has a great petition out there called mm. Sustainable Servers, which she's trying to lobby Parliament to try and have this better regulated or better monitored too. So, yeah, that's definitely an, an area of emergence or, or growing interest. Thinking about Bitcoin as an example, that's a yeah. technology that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, so well, it does good things. Well, it, it does things. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I guess Bitcoin in context, Bitcoin and the Satoshi Nakamoto paper came out in two thousand and eight, right off the back of the global economic crisis. So I think it was it hit a sweet spot. It was a technology which met a specific need mm-hmm. at a specific point in time when that need had really come to the fore, had really spiked. Mm-hmm. So I think we all remember 2008, there was a, a spike in unemployment in the US, mm-hmm. the subprime mortgage crisis. Along with unemployment, there were a number of banks that either collapsed or went back into public control, mm-hmm. got split apart and then resold. And I suppose in that environment where there was a specific lack of trust in, I guess, massive financial institutions, you can both understand why characters like Satoshi Nakamoto are aliases and don't really exist as an individual in the real world, because that would be a particularly difficult environment for a real person to exist in trying to take on the global economic crisis and multinational banks. But on top of that, there was a need to have transparency of transactions. And that is what Bitcoin provided at that point in time. And it was a time when, yes, there was a real lack of trust in organizations and institutions where people had trusted their finances up to that point in time. I would say, though, in 2008, the number of Bitcoin miners who were out there, it was probably a twinkle in the eye of the amount of electricity consumed compared to kind of how that has spiked and where we're up to now. So given the the kind of length of the blockchain and the amount of mining that has gone on in that time, it's getting more aggressive over time. Um, There is research in place to try and stop the way that those transactions are validated to mean that they're less energy hungry, the less power consumption hungry, but they're still proof of concepts. And, and really, Bitcoin is still based on the proof of work, which is effectively exchanging value for electricity consumption. So the money is it's effectively electricity is the new oil in the Bitcoin world. So, yeah, I know. I know it's a scary place. Kingsley, if people want to continue the conversation, where do they find where do they find the coffee shop and yes, where do they okay. find you on, on the social media? So I'm just outside the coffee shop, just outside Brighton, um, and happy to talk um, tech to the nth degree over a lovely coffee um, that's all traceably sourced and some real bread too. Best place to find me is probably on Twitter as um, Kingsley, but replacing the L and the E with a one and a three. So Kings13Y, that is kind of the hub for a lot of stuff that I talk about. 
Otherwise, I'm a partner in a consultancy called Underscore, so you can also find me kind of through work channels on underscore.io. But yeah, love to talk more to anyone who's interested in ethical technology or just bleeding edge technology going forward too, so for sure. Thank you very much. Great, thanks. Thanks for chatting too. I'm sitting down with Kat Sweetle from Ticketmaster. Kat gave a talk at the conference today, but she's also fairly well-known and visible in the community. Kat, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can we start by just giving us a bit of your background and what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, so where I am today, I'm an engineering manager at Ticketmaster. I work on the core ticketing engine. It's very fun. How I got there, Lord only knows. I have a, a finance degree, which I got at my dad's urging. So I grew up going to work with him. He worked always in infrastructure and operations. So I spent a lot of time in server rooms. But then I got a business degree and I hated it. And I just went back to the stuff that I liked, which is technology. And I don't know ended up here. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the talk that you gave today, please. Yes. So I spoke on the scaling and culture track and my talk was about variety and how I think it's the secret to achieving scale. So what is variety? <laughs> it's a wide term. What are the different components? So the way that I choose to address it in the talk is basically through the lens of Ashby's law of requisite variety, which basically says the more options you have available to a system, the more resilient, the longer it'll last, the better it'll do. And so that's the lens that I choose to use, which options are available to a system. And by a system, not just a piece of technology. Well, even a piece of technology is not usually a piece of technology, right? We work with socio-technical systems. Yeah, so I do talk about what it means to incur variety in technical systems and then also in our culture and in our strategy and I think variety is generally a good thing as long as you are incurring it where it makes sense. So what would be some examples of where it makes sense and where it doesn't? So where it would make sense if you have a diverse market, which I would say many of us do, especially those of us that are engaging in a service pivot, right? Where we're responsible for providing unique offerings to individual people over time, right? So engaging in a relationship rather than a transaction. Obviously their variety is really important because you need to meet someone's needs over time. However, the way that you do that is through low variety, right? So we don't want to be have a bunch of variety in the infrastructure that those applications or those services are provided on top of. We want infrastructure and things like that to be repeatable to the point that they're almost commoditized. So what would the variety be on top of that? 
Well, let's see if I can give a tangible example that's not under NDA. <laughs> but like when we get recommendations, personalized recommendations, that mm -hmm. there's a huge variety in that, mm -hmm. right? So I'm getting something that fits my unique needs. Mm -hmm. How that's done is through a platform that's built on not economy, the supply side economy of scale, but a demand side of economy of scale. And then that platform is built on top of infrastructure, which is our traditional supply side economy of scale. And how does this translate, because you were in the culture track, <laughs> how does this translate to the people in the teams and the people in the organization? Yeah, so obviously we're said this already, we're making socio-technical systems. So these are systems that are implemented by people for people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the way that we think about our work is going to manifest itself in the systems and we see plenty of examples of this going poorly and this going really well. And I think if we want to build resilient organizations, which all of us do, we want to continue to receive a paycheck, right? Yeah. <laughs> that would be a good thing. <laughs> so we need to be open to a lot of different options. And the way that we do that is by creating teams that have a lot of variety in their experiences, the individual experiences of the members, the shared experiences. They have a lot of different beliefs and are able to see different options and the potential consequences of those different options. So how do we get that variety? Because if we look <laughs> at our industry, it's pretty monoculture. Yeah. So I think in my experience, I can't speak for everyone, but in my experience, the way to create more options is not actually always to create more options, but to become sensitized to more options. So in my talk, I address the difference between taking an account of a situation and accounting for a situation. So when we just take an account of what is currently happening, what the facts are, it leaves us open to lots of different options. When we begin to account for why things are the way that they are, we begin to narrow our option set. And I think that approach seems to be helpful in how we address the variety within teams and the diversity within teams. If we make this assumption that only people with a CS degree are going to be good at programming, then we eliminate a lot of options. If we have an assumption that only men are good at programming, we eliminate a lot of options. But if we can pause and say, who is good at programming? How do we know they're good at programming? And then go from there, we have all possible people who are good at programming included in that option set. So I think it's really, really important to stop and account of before we begin to account for. And that's quite difficult, right? Because we have beliefs that even filter the way that we view the world. So my account of a situation may not even be comprehensive because of the beliefs that I hold. I literally might not be able to see what is there. So how do I overcome that? <laughs> I don't know. When you find out, will you let me know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just kidding. There. I mean, 
seriously, I don't know, but I have stumbled upon things that have been helpful. So a practice that I use myself is to try to take an account of the situation and then do multiple account fours. And sometimes I even try to imagine that I am different people. Um, so this, that's also very applicable to strategy and things like that, right? Richard Rimmel writes about that in Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, I think. Uh, another thing would just be to use tools that encourage you to take an account of a situation and practice that divergence convergence. So do those things individually and then bring them together to see how the accounts of the current state differ and then that can surface where our beliefs differ and if they don't differ that's not actually desirable because it means that we hold the same set of beliefs that are filtering our experience of the world. So like an A3, when I do an A3, I actually would have everyone on my team fill out the first couple sections, the background and current situation individually, and then we bring it together and say, what's happening here, folks? Deliberately provocative in terms of <laughs> gathering it's the- pretty much my life philosophy. <laughs> So that, that's great. Being deliberately provocative, <laughs> moving on from your talk here, you have some thoughts about our industry. So let's tackle some of those. Yes, I have thoughts. That's fair to say. Yeah, my thought generally about our industry is it's a baby. It's still in its infancy. And that means a lot of things from what I can tell and the two things that I'm very concerned with are if this industry is in its infancy, we are setting the tone for future generations, right? And we hear things like software is eating the world and all of these things and automation is going to take a lot of jobs away. Well, it stands to reason that jobs in the future will be technology. Many, 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 right? So each of us today, we have a huge responsibility to the future generations and the future of technology and the future of humanity because we see how technology acts on us and we act on technology. So there's so few of us today versus what there will be in the future that each one of us, whether we like it or not, has a tremendous responsibility to future generations to consider the outcomes of our actions and be mindful and be present in the moment in thinking about what we're doing and the way that we're implementing systems. So how do we make that practical and real? I think there's tons of things out there already, right? Like as far as being mindful and being in the moment when you are doing the thing, there's test, lots of test-first methodologies, right, that encourage us to be where we are and be thinking about uh, the future of the thing. I like Kent Beck's TCR. I actually think that my grandmother invented that. <laughs> <laughs> I was working on something for a few hours one day and I got really frustrated and she said, oh honey, you've only been working on it a few hours, just delete it and start over. <laughs> but those things encourage us, right, to be mindful, to take an account of before we start to account for, to step through that process. And then there are bigger things, you know, practices where we can question and uh, I hope that we all do that 
right? Like question strategy, question and make those conversations more bi-directional. Like where would we be here in 2019 if years ago at Facebook, someone had questioned the strategy of seeking engagement regardless of what type of engagement that is, right? So uh, I hope that those conversations become more bi-directional and we value the folks who are creating the strategy and we value the folks who are implementing the systems. Are we moving into the realm of ethics? <laughs> are we moving there? We exist there, right? Like, mm-hmm. This just, it is, regardless of whether we want to acknowledge it or not. That's why sometimes people don't like the idea that I have about computing being in its infancy, about each of us having this responsibility, because then it means that you can't just go to work and do what you're told. If you choose to not think, that's still a choice, mm-hmm. right? And what's the great quote, Hannah Arendt, right? That evil is just a failure to think, something mm-hmm. like that. So whether we like it or not, we are in that realm. And mm-hmm. it's just whether or not we choose to acknowledge it. For the listener who's looking at this, and perhaps for the first time thinking, what I'm doing has a big and longer-term consequence. Where do they go for guidance? Do we have a moral compass in technology today? I think that's an interesting thing about this time in general, not just in technology, but we are becoming more secular. But the same rules kind of apply, right? We may have looked to certain places in the past to to enjoy that moment of transcendence, the shared meaning and uh, where we really feel like we belong and everything is real. We can still have those moments today. And so I don't think we need to look for a compass. I think we need to look to each other and value the testimony that each one of us brings to the table, right? We have to listen to each other and Sometimes that is a long process and it it takes time, but I think it's time well spent, right? So I don't think there's a moral compass. I think there is each other. But when I'm under pressure writing code, get the feature out, Mm -hmm. how do I stop and think? You are making those choices regardless, right? And it might be that you're just not very good yet at stepping through the the inference ladder mindfully and that takes practice and I venture to say that with practice you'll step through it much more quickly but we are so privileged in this field and there's so many of us like I never thought I would be here seeing the world and all these things that's not the background that I come from and so I'm not afraid to lose it all by saying no I feel perfectly empowered to say no, because I know I can do fine with less. (laughs) So those of us who are in a position to say no and to speak up, you have the responsibility to do that. Kat, if people want to continue the conversation, where do they find you? I am Kat Swatel everywhere. And just my name. So Skype, Google, Twitter, Gmail, everywhere possible. C-A-T-S-W-E-T-E-L. Done. Thanks so much. Thank you.